Well, as, as many of you know, before I was as a pastor, I was a professional musician. And over all the years that I, I worked as a professional musician, I must have probably played 500, 600 weddings at least. I've been to and played at more weddings than you would ever possibly want to attend. <laughs> but you know, weddings, they're, they are um, they're fascinating events because to me, they're a bit like airports, right? Airports are great people-watching places, aren't they? I mean, they're just so full of life and so many interesting people from different walks of life. And, you know, you, usually at the airport, you get your coffee or whatever, and you sit down, and you just kind of watch people and observe and, you know, think your thoughts to yourself and make your little judgments about people. And, you know, come on, you know, you do. Um, and weddings are a similar kind of event because you get this little slice of humanity. You get this little microcosm of human behavior in a social setting. You know, for a number of, a period of hours, there's a bunch of people put together. And some people know each other and others don't. You've got families, you've got friends, you've got all the dynamics that come along with that, right? All the uh, issues that come with family. Uh, And then there are strangers who don't know each other and often they're put at the same table together. And there can be awkward conversations and all that kind of thing. But it's interesting to to watch people as, as the wedding progresses. Because at the beginning of the wedding, everybody's quite respectful and, you know, on their best behavior as the night goes on and... The eating and the drinking happens. You know, gradually people loosen up and, you know, start doing crazy dumb stuff. Like, you know, doing the worm on the floor. And some guy always takes his shirt off and puts his tie around his head. But they're fascinating things, weddings. And one of the things that um, I would often be charged with doing was making all the announcements over the microphone. It was kind of like the MC of the band. And so they would be like, okay, you're doing all the announcements. So if, um, if the event coordinator had something I needed to tell the guests or if the band was making an announcement, I would be the person to do that. And the band loved me doing that because of, well, the accent. <laughs> they used to joke, we've flown them in from England for one night only. But I would make all the accents and I'd kind of, you know, I'd, I'd dial it up a little bit. So it'd be like, hey, ladies and gentlemen, could you please take your seats? Thank you. And... That worked fine until about the fourth or fifth time, and then it was like, okay, folks, can you just please sit down? You know, finally people would get the message. But the one announcement that nobody liked to hear, other than the band, because it meant we were going home, was last call at the bar. And it doesn't matter how well the band had played and how many... Applause we got. When I made that announcement, ladies and gentlemen, the bar is closing in 10 minutes. It would usually be met with, you know, very grumpy response. It was a classic case of don't kill the messenger. But I would make that announcement. And, of course, the dance floor would empty as everybody headed to get their last drink of the night. And it was, I was always amazed how quickly after last call, the party would empty out how everybody would wrap up and start going home because the bar had closed, the wine had stopped flowing and people were going to go home. And so when we come to this piece of scripture today, the wedding of Cana, it's a very famous scripture, isn't it? We've got the same scenario except there's a slight difference which is actually even worse because in all the weddings I've played, 
you know, when the bar closes because it's time for the event to be over. But in this case, what has happened is the wine has run out in mid-wedding celebration. And you need to understand a little bit of context here to understand how serious that was in in Jesus' time versus our own time. So, you know, in our, in our day-to-day, a wedding is usually a day affair, isn't it? Okay, there's usually the ceremony. Sometime in the, the afternoon, there's a cocktail hour, and then there's a reception, and you're usually wrapped up by 11 or 12 at night. But in Jesus' time, first century AD, and, you're t- and, and in Jewish custom, a wedding would last days, usually up to a week. It was a week-long celebration. And people all over the town and the village were invited. You didn't just invite friends and families. You kind of invited everybody. And it was a really big deal. And the bridegroom was the one responsible for providing the food and the drink and the beverages and all that kind of stuff. So to run out of wine mid-wedding celebration would have been a very shameful thing in this culture. And it's something that the bridegroom probably would have been reminded of for years to come. Oh, yeah, yeah, you remember his wedding where the wine ran out? Yeah, halfway through. You know, it was really a, quite a, um, a, a bad situation to be in. And so um, Mary approaches Jesus. And it's kind of interesting because we don't, we don't really get any background as to why Mary would, you know, decide, oh, well, Jesus can do something about this. But she, she approaches Jesus and she tells them, uh, Jesus... They've run out of wine. We have no wine left. And Jesus' answer is very interesting, isn't it? He says, woman, why do you involve me? My time or my hour has not yet come. And when you look at the Greek of what Jesus is actually saying there, he's actually, it literally translates like this. It's what to me and to you. That's what Jesus says to Mary there. What to me and what to you. So if you put that in a contemporary context, it would almost be like, you know, imagine Jesus is at the wedding He's hanging with his disciples. They're having a good time. And all of a sudden, his mum comes up looking very worried. And she's like, Jesus, they've run out of wine. And Jesus is like, and? You know what? Why, why is that my problem? I'm just a guest here. And when we read this response, I don't know about you, but when I, when I read it, and you read, he says, you know, woman, what is, what is that to me? That little part of me is like, wow, that kind of feels like he's been a little bit disrespectful you know it's like you know come on give your mass some respect huh you know and but and it is a rebuff of sorts but when we look at it this phrase this word woman it's not actually a disrespectful uh, word at all or, or tone to it it's quite a common cultural word to use back then in fact when jesus is on the cross this is in John chapter 19, verse 26. When he's on the cross and he's dying and he looks over to, to Mary, his mother, and to John, the beloved disciple, the only one who didn't abandon him. And do you remember where he, he looks at Mary and he says, woman, this is your son. And to John, this is your mother. Well, it's the same word he uses there for woman. So it's actually a very, a very tender uh, moment in scripture that. And so when he's using this word here, he's not really being disrespectful. It was more just a cultural uh, way of speaking. But at the same time, it is a rebuff of sorts. He is saying to his mom, why are you coming to me with this? And then he says, my, my hour has not yet come. That's a very interesting statement, isn't it? Why would you say that? 
Hey, can you help with the wine? Mum, my hour has not yet come. You know, it doesn't really make sense. But I think there's a number of reasons for why Jesus said that. And I think the first one is this. What Jesus is trying to do is he's establishing that he operates on the timetable of his heavenly father, not on the timetable of his earthly mother. You see, there's, there's an earthly timing for things, and there's a divine timing for things, isn't there? You know, our, there's, in other words, there's our timing, and there's God's timing. And often, they don't coincide at the same time. We have an idea of when we want things to happen, when we want to get things done. But God has other plans because he's on a different timetable to us. And I think back to um, when Sarah and I decided that we wanted to have children. And we felt we were ready. And so we started trying for children. And we went through eight, almost nine years, long years of infertility with nothing happening. Some very lonely moments as all our friends of similar ages were getting pregnant and sort of, you know, putting them in a different phase of life to us. And coming to the realization, wow, maybe this is never going to happen. And then after all, just before nine years, miraculously, Sarah became pregnant. And it was only then, with that amazing gift and miracle of our little girl Dove, that we realized the timing was absolutely perfect. If we'd had our own earthly choice, we'd have wanted the kids eight years earlier. But looking back, both Sarah and I realized that if we had had kids at the age we thought we were ready, I don't even know if we'd still be married today. Because we wouldn't have been ready. We were not in the right place in our marriage. And God in his wisdom, he knew that. And so thank goodness God works things on his timetable rather than our timetable. So that's the first point I think Jesus is trying to make here. It's like, Mary, you you think that I'm supposed to reveal myself now, but I listen to the Father first. And when Jesus, here's another reason, when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, what he really means by hour is the time of his death and his resurrection. And this, this theme of hour is very prominent, actually, in the Gospel of John. This is the first of nine times that Jesus talks about his hour. The first three times are in a future context, his hour to come. And the last six in the Gospel of John are, a, my hour has arrived. But it's a very important theme. Another reason for Jesus' response to Mary is that I think Mary does not realize what her request to Jesus will cost him. You see, by performing this miracle, by turning the water into wine, this is a sign. Remember, Jesus call, uh, sorry, John calls the miracle signs. And it's a sign that he starts the road to his death on the cross. This miracle would launch his public ministry and the countdown would begin to the moment when Jesus has to go to the cross. So Mary didn't realize that by asking Jesus to do this, this would start that timer. 
Another reason. Perhaps Jesus' rebuff to Mary was to stir her to deeper faith. You know, often the sign of a mature Christian versus an immature Christian is in their response to prayers that seem to go unanswered. Any of you ever had a prayer that's not been answered? Perhaps it's a persistent prayer, one you pray a lot, and you don't seem to get any answers from the Lord about it. Well, do you tend to buck at the first disappointment or lack of a clear answer from God? Is your reaction when you don't get the answer you want and the genie doesn't come out of the bottle and give you what you want, is your answer to to walk away from God? To be frustrated with God? To be angry at God? Or do you dig in? Do you press in? Do you seek God's face all the harder in the midst of whatever you're going through? That's the difference between somebody who has a, a deep, mature faith and somebody who doesn't. They don't run at the first sign of unanswered prayer or trouble. No, they dig in. They say, Lord, I am going to seek you more and more. I will be the persistent widow who finally has the Lord answer for her. So perhaps that's what Jesus was doing here. He was trying to stir Mary to deeper faith. And herein is why Mary's response to Jesus is truly remarkable. Because essentially Jesus has has said, look, what is, what, what is this to do with me? And instead of pushing back at her son, as most mothers probably would, right? I mean, think about it. If that was your son, if that was Jesus, and he, he replied like that to you, what would you say? You'd probably be like, what do you mean your hour hasn't come? Come on, sort some wine out. Stop being so spiritual. We, we, you know, we've got practical needs here. But instead, she doesn't do that. No, instead, she gives one of the, the simplest and most profound pieces of instruction And advice found anywhere in Scripture. In fact, it's what Mary says, it's so profound and so important that if we actually followed this instruction that she gives, our lives would look completely different. What does she say? Quite simply, she says, Do whatever he tells you. Think about that. Can you imagine if we were to truly follow that simple command? Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever Jesus tells you. Can you imagine how different our lives would work if we actually followed that instruction? How transformed you would be. Do what he tells you. It's a simple statement by Mary, very profound and full of faith, complete trust. It's in Jesus' hands. He will take care of this as he sees fit. So despite the conversation that Jesus and his mum just had, as we learn, Jesus does act, doesn't he? And we're told that nearby there are six stone water jars and that they are used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Now, folks, these are, these are big stone jars. These aren't these you know, little jam jars we're talking about. These are, these are big 20 to 30 gallon jars. And Jesus tells the servants to fill them to the brim with water. And then some of the water is drawn. They take it to the master of the banquet. 
And the water has been miraculously turned into wine. And the, the master of the banquet, he's so impressed by the wine that he pulls the bridegroom aside and he says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. Hmm. So what's going on here? I mean, let's be honest. Jesus has just produced a lot of wine. You know, that's a, I mean, we're talking 120 to 180 gallons of serious top quality wine. And on top of that, it sounds like the crowd is already somewhat well-oiled, right? So he's just created a whole lot more wine for these folks. So again, we've got to think of context here. Um, because we know Jesus was not one uh, to, to promote or be in favor of drunkenness. But there's a deeper meaning here. And it's important to remember that, that wine back in Jesus' day was frequently drunk. It was a very common drink in the time, but it was much weaker than the wine that we drink today, if you do drink, because it, it was diluted significantly with water. So it's very much a watered-down wine. But again, there's, there's deeper meaning going on here. One, one of the things to realize in all the Gospels, the four Gospels we have of Jesus' life, there's no pork in the Gospels. Right? Everything that is in there is there for a specific reason. And everything Jesus says and does that the writers of the Gospels report is there for a very specific reason. And so when we think of the meaning of wine in a biblical sense, um, in the Old Testament, an abundance of wine signified and characterized the messianic age or the age of fulfillment. It, sign- it signified that the, the Messiah, the Savior, had come. Listen to what Amos, Prophet Amos says here in chapter 9, verse 13. He says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains. Or how about, listen to Isaiah here, chapter 25, verse 6, which says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. So it was a sign that the Messiah had come, the Savior had come, and that there was a celebration. And so what Jesus is doing here. I believe he's, he's doing a high, highly symbolic act that says who he is and why he came. See, Jesus, by doing this miracle, is making the statement that he is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Savior and that he came to do a new thing. Why do I think that? Well, it's no coincidence that the jars that are filled with water that is turned into wine were used for Jewish ritual washing. That points us back to the Old Testament, right? To the law, to the Old Covenant. And the idea was that you had to continuously wash yourself to be clean, to be cleansed. But Jesus is saying, I am the new covenant. I am the one who washes you clean. And that I am a God of extravagant abundance. There's more than enough wine. It's an extravagant amount of wine. They're filled to the brim. To the brim. 
There's more than enough wine flowing from those jars because Jesus is a God of extravagant abundance towards his people. Do you know that? We have an extravagant God who gives us an abundance of his love and his grace and his compassion. This is why John, the writer of the gospel, calls this the first of Jesus' miraculous signs. What is a sign? A sign points to a deeper meaning. And here Jesus is pointing to the fact that he has come as the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies, as the Messiah, the one who would bring salvation to the world as the march towards the time of his hour has begun. Jesus is the new wine. He symbolizes that step out of the old Mosaic law into a new covenant, a covenant of grace, of forgiveness, of redemption. It was also a sign because many at the wedding party actually didn't know what Jesus had done. Do you notice that? Not everybody knows. The, the master of the banquet doesn't know. As far as he knows, there's just these uh, stone jars of wine. But the servants knew and his disciples knew. And what do, we, what do we hear there in the last verse of that scripture we just read? That his disciples who knew the miracle Jesus had performed, it revealed Jesus' glory. And what was the disciples' response? It says they put their faith in him. So by doing this incredible miracle, um, Jesus revealed his glory. He revealed who he truly was. And for the disciples, that was a moment of recognizing Jesus' deity and putting their faith in him. So as we reflect on some of those thoughts, as we reflect on this scripture, there's a few points that I think we can take away from today. Number one, remember that there is our timetable and then there is God's timetable. And that often they do not coincide. Sometimes they do. And that's when things are really powerful. When you are on track with God's calendar, you know, when you guys are connected by Google, you've got the same calendar going on. That's when the powerful stuff happens. But a lot of the time, we're not. We have our agenda, and God has his agenda. So don't be discouraged by seemingly unanswered prayer and apparent lack of action by God. Our God is not a God of inaction. He does not sit idly by as we struggle. But instead, seek him all the harder. When the going gets tough, what's the other part of that? The tough get going. So when the going gets tough, you get tough and you dig deeper with God. Do not back out. It will grow your faith. And in that, you will come to understand, as Sarah and I did, with the infertility, that God's timing is always the best timing. Number two, profoundly simple, very hard to carry out. Do what Jesus tells you. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? Well, just just do what Jesus tells you. How do we know what to do what Jesus tells us? Well, the four Gospels are full of the teaching 
and instruction of Jesus. Read them. Study the Gospels day in, day out. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide you as you read. Live it out. Follow his teaching in your lives. If you don't know where to start, begin with the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Be merciful. Be compassionate. Be forgiving. Be loving towards your neighbor. Do these things. Do what Jesus tells you. And I promise you, your life will be transformed. And number three, remember that we have a God who is extravagant in his love for us. Whose mercies and grace overflow for us. And that one day, we will be part of the ultimate wedding feast. Because remember something, you know where this is all really pointing? The wedding of Cana was just a prelude to the wedding supper of the Lamb that we read about in Revelation chapter 19. That's where it's leading. Do you realize that one day, if you are a believer in Christ and your heart is with Jesus, we will be part of the greatest celebration ever. That we will be at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And that's what Jesus is pointing to here, where there will be new wines and a new heavens and a new earth. And that, folks, is a reason to celebrate. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are an extravagant God, that you give abundantly to those you love. We thank you, Lord, that there are new wines coming that will be a a celebration of you, our Lord and Savior. I thank you, Lord, that you have given us the invitation to come to the banquet, that there is a seat waiting for us, and that all we have to do is accept you into our hearts to declare that you are Lord and Savior, and our place at the table is secure. Thank you, Lord for all you do and the ways that you bless us. I pray that we would seek you more deeply, Lord, that we would do what you tell us, that we would get aligned with your timetable and trust you, Lord. Would you bless us, Lord? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.